So, H is for honesty. Now, what we want to do is we want to talk about these traits, realizing that these are all traits. They're, they're not just things that would be good for us to exhibit. They're traits that, are, uh, that need to be present in our life because we are image bearers and they're traits of God. And so when you think about something like honesty, what we want to do is we want to think about this maybe in a different way than we would normally think about it. Normally, you'd have a conversation about honesty, maybe with your kids or with somebody, and the whole conversation would be about honesty is important because lying is wrong. Now, that's not untrue. It's just not the conversation we're going to have. We're going to have a totally different conversation about honesty. But honesty is a difficult, it's a difficult thing. It's a difficult topic. It's, it's not difficult to understand, but it's difficult to live out in uh, a biblical, God-honoring way. Um, and, you know, uh, art oftentimes or, or just human creativity so oftentimes reflects reality and even something as uh, silly as a puppet who every time he tells a lie his nose grows which you would think that if there was anything that would prevent you from telling lies would be a growing nose but yet he cannot resist the temptation to tell lies and his nose grows and it grows and it grows and as silly as the story of Pinocchio may seem, it is so accurate in depicting the human experience because lying is a very difficult temptation and it is a very, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's very tricky. It's very rewarding in the short term. It's and it's slippery because the world has eroded our understanding of what exactly we're talking about. Listen, we, this, is, this is right now the current data. The average American lies 13 times a week. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that's two times a day and one on Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, since we're in church, that knocked one of the lies down we could say that so the reality is is that this is a uh, it's a universal struggle it's a huge problem and I want you to think about this I want you to think about how if, if we were just to think about the grand scheme of things right and the the battle the spiritual battle that rages between uh, the things of God and the agenda of the enemy. Now, if you were in opposition to God's people, God's agenda, God's the proliferation of God's kingdom, then what you would do is you would you would want to erode the reality or the understanding that there is absolute truth, right? You want to try to, you want to, try to uh, get as much doubt 
or suspicion regarding the Bible as possible. So what would you do if you were the enemy trying to accomplish this? Well, first of all, what you would do is you would try to, you would try to get Christians to be the to be to act in ways that were untrustworthy and to be weird about things and to 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 be a bad witness and not to be a compelling witness to get them to argue with each other like they can't get along with each other then how would you expect them to get along with anybody else to basically just get a lot of things to happen that we see happening among so-called Christian people today then on top of that what you would do because that's going to erode because if we're the people of the truth then our witness to the world the lost world is going to connect what we do, how we act, what we say to the validity of the Bible. As, as much as those two things don't depend on each other, it's still the perception of the world, right? So that's one tactic that's been successful. Then, then what you would do is once, once that uh, truth began to get a little muddy, things got fuzzy, well then, what does, what does lying do? When lying comes into, a, when someone lies to you, the result is it erodes trust. And trust is the foundation of all human relationship. And so when trust erodes, all relationship erodes. So now we have the erosion of, I mean, I could just spend all night talking about this. We have the erosion of human relationships by the reduction of trust. See, we live in a scenario, in a society, in a scenario right now where, where trust is an all-time premium. You don't believe what you hear, what you see. Well, I mean, there's never been a more cynical culture than this culture, Right? You've never even imagined a more cynical time than it is right now. So with trust eroded, relationships eroded, then think about this. Then you just introduce a virus into the equation that now you have trust eroded. So relationships are eroded and now you physically separate people and put distance between them. And look at, how the, look at how the tactics are, you know, all working together to just dismantle if we're not careful. But here's the thing. I mean, we know that greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. So it's, we, listen, we will, we will never lose because the enemy strategy is better we will only lose because we have bought the lie that's the only way because we see we we are people of victory people of victory and so this issue of honesty plays deeply into the erosion not just of the culture, but the Christian culture and the Christian witness and just, oh my goodness, so many things. Now we serve a God, the Bible says in Psalm 51, 
Surely you desire truth in the inward part. See, you would think maybe that would say faith, or maybe that would say hope, or maybe that would say, but it's truth. That God desires truth in our inner parts. Now let's define some, some things, okay? For the sake of understanding. A lie is a deliberate untruth or untrue statement told with the intent to deceive. So it's deliberate and the intent of it is to deceive the hearer. That's what makes it a lie. Now, the Bible doesn't see things this way, but we, we've manufactured levels of lies and types of lies and all sorts of things to the degree to where the, our vernacular has this new thing called a white lie, which is an untrue statement that appears harmless or unimportant. But a white lie is a lie. But what we do is, because it's harmless, it seems harmless, it seems unimportant, then somehow it's, you know, it's objectified. Somehow it could be, I, we don't know who said this, but it is a brilliant quote. Those who are given to white lies soon become colorblind. It doesn't take long, does it? You know, you first you start telling a little lie, and then that leads to something else, which leads to something else, and pretty soon... You know, it's been lying all along. It's just that the, the stakes get greater and the consequences get greater. And one thing leads to another. And next thing you know, we live in a world where lying is common. And in many ways, it's expected. It's just expected. And I was just thinking about in my own life where, you know, I willingly and intentionally subject myself to lies for the sake of information. So what I'm saying is, is that um, I will read things or watch things or listen to things that I know before I even Read, listen, or watch. I already know it's a lie. But I, I'm trying to be informed about what's going on. In other words, I want to be informed about the deception, with the deceptions that are out there so that I can, you know, do a better and more informed job of, uh, you know, caring for the flock and speaking truth into your lives and those sorts of things. But in the midst of it, so, you know, and that's hard to do. Because you know what, you're, what, what I feel like should be my natural response is that if I know something's a lie, that I should just avoid it. Like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to see that. I don't want to. And I wish I could. It'd be great if I could do that. But, and so it's a, it's a fine line, isn't it? I mean, this is the world in which we live in, you know, where you can't just. You know, you, you can't just block, you can't block all the lies out of your ears. You can't do it. And, you know, that's, when you really think about that, it, it's, it's kind of troubling. And, you know, you, you think about things like, 
growing up, you'd say, cross your heart and hope to die. Stick a needle. How does it go? What is wrong with us? I mean, what is wrong with us? Who in the world came up with that? Like the same person who told me when I was a little kid a story about Hansel and Gretel. Like, what are you, demented? I mean, what are we doing here? Do I need to know about people who want to eat kids? That's all you could come up with? But here, here's the thing. Why is, there, why is there the saying, cross your heart and hope to die, stick a needle in your eye? Why is that even a saying? Because intrinsically, we're not trustworthy. That wouldn't even be a saying if we were trustworthy. The reason that that is something is because from a young age, we already realize that at the core, we're all shady. We are shady, man. Now, Pastor Matt started talking about integrity and character last week. And I want you to understand that you can be honest but not have integrity. But it's impossible to have integrity without honesty. And so you have to understand how the pieces fit together. You see, you can tell the truth and have no integrity. Now, I could think of a thousand ways that this could happen, but simplistically, you could you could rob a bank and then when the police come to you or even turn yourself in, whatever, the police come to you and you admit and tell the truth and confess what you did. So you're honest, but you still robbed a bank. You don't have any integrity. But you can't be, it's impossible to be a person of integrity without being honest. So, you see, honesty in and of itself is it's just a piece that connects together. But it's, it's not something that just stands on its own. It's got to be part of other things. Because I always, whenever I'm talking about honesty, I always say these two things. The first thing is being honest means that what you say is true. That's what you have to understand, is that when we're talking about being honest, the things that come out of your mouth should be true. But being lonely means that you say everything that is true. Because nobody wants to be around anybody who does that. And that is not what I'm talking about. That's not... And people who do this think that they're honest, and really they're not. They're just mean and ignorant. That's not honesty. All you're going to do is hurt everybody's feelings. And so, because what happens is if, if you 
if you say, if your goal is to say everything that is true, then you're going to hurt people a lot of times for no reason or purpose whatsoever. And so it becomes malicious, you see. So you just need to make sure that what comes out of your mouth is true. Now, what we're going to do is we're not going to, we're going to, it's going to be a little different tonight than normal. We're not going to spend all our time filling blanks in. We're going to spend all our time looking at this passage of Scripture. So there'll be a few, but not many. We want to look at 1 Samuel 3. And the first thing we want to see is that we speak the truth. We speak it. Now, some background so we know what we're talking about here. Samuel, remember the, the famous story of Samuel being born. His mother was Hannah. She was unable to conceive and bear a child. And we meet Hannah at the temple, kneeling at the altar, crying out to God, wailing before God, praying that God would allow her to be a mom and to bear a child. And so, in matter of fact, she's doing it in such a way that, remember, the priest thinks that she's drunk because she's so um, just distraught over this issue. God hears her prayer. He answers her prayer. She becomes pregnant. She gives birth to a son. She names her son Samuel out of deep gratitude and love for the Lord. She then dedicates Samuel back to God. And so she brings, once she weans Samuel, so he's just a young boy, she brings him back to the temple and she gives him to the priest. The priest's name is Eli. She gives him to Eli to raise as, you know, as his sort of to be his surrogate father or his foster father, if you will, or whatever the case may be, to be his mentor. And so Samuel's going to grow up living in the temple with the priest Eli, and Eli's going to become his role model and his mentor. So we're to speak the truth. So 1 Samuel 3, now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, so it's important to understand the circumstance that all of this happens in. The Bible says there was no widespread revelation. So this is a very spiritually depressed time in history. And the reason why is going to become clear later on. And it came to pass at that time that Eli was lying down in his place and when his eyes had begun to grow dim that he could not see, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark of God was, and while Samuel was lying down, that the Lord called to Samuel. And he answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. And he went back and lied down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. So Samuel arose, and he went to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. And he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. For Samuel did not yet know that it was the Lord, nor was the word of the Lord yet revealed to him. Now the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go and lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called, 
as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears will tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Now, now we understand why it's a very spiritually dark time because the spiritual leader of this time, Eli, is clearly a person who's got many issues. Now, how do you explain the fact that God has this unbelievably uh, harsh judgment coming down on the high priest because of the actions of his son and so his him and his family and they're going to you know this i mean the that his sins cannot be atoned for this is a serious indictment and yet this is a man who has raised and mentored samuel as we're going to see who is a phenomenal example of godliness and righteousness and who some of you maybe have read this in your d group reading and got puzzled before and yet and yet the priest recognizes that it's god that's calling him so you know clearly he's not just void of all spirituality i mean he and so what how do we explain this scenario and and this is what i want you to understand about eli eli is the first person in the bible that taught me everything that i know about codependency and enablement eli is the first place in scripture well i mean you could make some cases in genesis but this is to me the clearest example What you have is a spiritual person functioning in a spiritual way. And yet, he has this one problem. He can't seem to say what needs to be said to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, these two are wicked. So because their dad's the high priest, they have a high position in the temple. So while, while dad is doing his thing, the sons are down at the side door of the temple. They're extorting money. They're, they're stealing um, meat off the uh, offering that belongs to God. They're stealing that. And they're involved in all sorts of sexual immorality with various women in the temple and God has gone to Eli multiple times and said hey this is unacceptable you need to deal with your sons now God knows that Eli knows what's going on of course he knows what's going on 
But not only does Eli know what's going on, but Eli knows that God knows what's going on, and yet he still can't bring himself to discipline his sons. And so God's finally had enough. Now, why do you think it is that, I mean, how could we possibly explain that Eli won't stop his sons from doing what they're doing? I mean, it's no different than today. Why, why would Eli not stop them? Because Eli is putting what his sons think of him over what God thinks of him. He doesn't want to fracture the relationship with his sons. He knows that if he goes and tells his sons that, that it, his sons are going to be upset. They're going to be mad. They're not going to like it. They're going to be mad at him. They're going to think that he's being controlling or judgmental or whatever the case may be. It's a simple case of codependency and enabling. It's no different than the parent today that knows that their child is up to no good and yet doesn't. And listen, what is, what is the judgment against them? The judgment that God holds is not that you didn't say anything to your boys, which he didn't. But God said the reason that this is going to fall upon you is because you restrained them not. You see, we have an obligation not just to tell people that are uh, under our authority that something is wrong, but to restrain them from doing that which is wrong. You can't enable someone to do something that is sinful. Or else what happens is you heap the judgment and condemnation on yourself. And there's the perfect example right there from Scripture. But what's interesting to me is in the midst of this is Samuel. You see, that this, that's the thing is that there's... See, oftentimes, look, we just need to just have this conversation because I don't know any other place in Scripture we could have it. You will see people who come to church and who are spiritually, they function spiritually. Maybe they teach a class, they serve, they, man, they know their Bible, they're, they're, they're involved in things, they, they're put together, and yet they're... There's, they are unable to have conversations with people that they're in authority over. They're unable to make hard decisions about their children or about their spouse. And it's just, you're scratching your head going, wait a minute. And, and you're wondering, like, what, now, is everything that I see in them a mirage? No. It's not a mirage. Eli has, has many spiritual qualities that are functioning. But his whole life is going down the drain because he's totally wrapped up in what his kids think about him. That's the bottom line. He's too afraid to do the hard thing. And when we get to the very end of this, 
you know, I'm going to, the, there's four or five things at the bottom of your handout we're going to say at the very last things we say about telling the truth. Remember Eli. Because if, if there's a tendency towards codependency in your heart, then those five principles all apply. That's what you need to understand when you're trying to figure out how you're going to say the hard things to the people that obviously you don't want to hurt them. Of course you don't. But you're hurting them worse by not saying anything. All right, so verse 15. So Samuel lay down until morning and opened the doors to the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Now, you're Samuel. Okay? Imagine. Here you are. You're, you're a 10, 11-year-old boy. This is your spiritual hero. This is your role model. This is the person that you, you serve alongside him every day. You, you look up to him. You, you know, he probably, truth be known, Eli probably has the spiritual wherewithal to where he probably doesn't even let his sons get anywhere near Samuel because he doesn't want them to negatively. So he's probably shielded Samuel from a lot of this. I don't know. But anyway, so there you are. Your whole life you've looked up to Eli. The last thing you want to do is hurt him. The last thing you want to do is disappoint him. But now you've had a conversation with God, and God just said some horrific things about Eli. I mean, this is way beyond bad news. This is devastating. And so, of course, he's afraid to tell Eli the vision because he knows that this is going to be devastating to him. Verse 16, so Eli calls Samuel and said, again, you can tell that Eli, look at, look at the wherewithal that Eli has. And he says, Samuel, my son, and he answered, here I am. So Eli says, what is the word that the Lord spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. God, do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all the things he said to you. So now Samuel's on the hook. And he's sort of standing there before his hero. And he's got to think to himself, now what? You know, how am I going to handle this? What am I going to do? This isn't just a simple cut and dry moment. This is a big moment in Samuel's life. This judgment against Eli is brutal. And here's the question. Why doesn't God just tell Eli the vision? Why even involve Samuel in this at all? Samuel's innocent and all. He doesn't have anything to do with all of this. Why put him in this situation? And don't you wonder, I mean, probably not here because Samuel's such a young boy. But if he was a little bit older, he'd probably be thinking the same thing. Like, God, why do you got me in the middle of this? I don't have anything to do with this. I think that all the time. I think, God, why? I don't want to be in the middle of this. Why don't you just, you know, do your little thing and take care of them, and then I don't have to, then I don't even have to worry about it. I don't have to have the conversation. You know that little lightning thing you got? Well, now would be a good time to use it. 
You know what I mean? It could just, or something, just because I don't want to have this conversation. This is going to be painful. This is going to be bad. There's no way it's going to work out. I mean, I already know how this is going to end. So just get me out of it. But it's interesting that God doesn't tell Eli. He tells Samuel. Because God's working in Samuel. He's working in Eli, but he's working in Samuel. And God already knows the end from the beginning. That's why sometimes you're going to find yourself in a situation as a God follower where you're going to know something and you're going to have to deal with something and you're going to feel this feeling of, I really wish I didn't know this. But understand, the, the, the temptation is, is to sort of look at some earthly circumstances that has put you in the situation to know what you know. But understand something. The sovereignty of God has allowed you to know it. And God's working in your life. And it's an important moment for you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? And that's where Samuel is. Am I going to tell Eli what he wants to hear? Maybe I could tell Eli, you know, I won't lie and tell him that it was good news, but I just, I'll just lighten the blow. I'll tell him, you know, that it was bad, but I just won't make it devastatingly bad. Could do that. I mean, this is what we do. This is what we think about. You know, and this is a this is a scary issue for me because there's only there's only two kind of churches in the world. Every church in the world fits into one of two categories. It's either a church where you're gonna they're gonna tell you what you want to hear. Or a church where they're going to tell you what you need to hear. And the temptation to tell you what you want to hear never goes away. But the reality that I'm going to give an account for everything that comes out of my mouth. And what happens, see, is that it... it so sometimes you can even feel like... You know, man, sometimes when you come in here and, you know, you get stung and then you limp out and your temptation is to say, you know, is, is Tony okay? It ain't got nothing to do with Tony. Sometimes I get emails like, you know, and I know why. You got your tail whipped, and then you email me, and you just want to encourage, say, you know, I'm praying for you. That's because you got your butt spanked. They ain't got nothing to do with me. See, I, I mean, it's, it's not a reflection of good day, bad day. It's a reflection of, I know that I'm going to stand to give account. And so, 
I'm way more fearful of who I'm going to stand before then than who I'm standing before now. So look at verse 18. This is such a pivotal moment. It's such a shame that it's just this verse in the middle of this story. But it's almost like the Bible should just stop and have this big space before and after 18. Then Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. See, now look. Eli responds in a godly way, doesn't he? That's what I'm telling you. I mean, I hope you see the sinister side of codependency and what happens. This, and all it is is the same thing. It's just being unwilling to make somebody do for themselves what they ought to because you basically are addicted to them liking you and appreciating you. It's just, it's just an addiction is all it is. And you create a monster. And look, it, it, it literally condemns his two sons and himself to death. It's just unbelievable. But look at how God rewards Honesty. Because what's interesting is how everything pivots on verse 18, and then 19 shows you God's response to that pivot. So the next thing the Bible says is that Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Now, all of that is a result of what happened in verse 18. Now, if verse 18 would have said something different, if Samuel would have made a different choice, verse 19 and verse 20 wouldn't say what they say. The reason that, that 19 and 20 are in the Bible is because 18's in the Bible. If he would have shortchanged, if he would have skimped, if he would have, if he would have you know, not said everything that needed to be said, then it wouldn't be so. But look at what God does to the man or the woman who's willing to be completely and totally honest, even though, look, it's painful and it hurts and he didn't want to do it and it broke his heart to have to do it. And he's a little boy. And so here he is. Now, he's still a little boy. I mean, he hasn't even hit puberty yet, and he's recognized as a prophet. I would say that's pretty amazing. And it just shows you how honesty stands out in a world of deception. How different he was, and how it was recognizable and seen. People recognized him as a prophet, and from that point on, for the rest of his life... He was seen as a prophet of God, as a man of God, as somebody who was trustworthy, as somebody who could be depended upon, as somebody who walked with God. I mean, so now you fast forward 40 years. You go 40 years ahead. 
Samuel's ministry is coming to a close. So he has led God's people for four decades. And now there's a transition where Israel has decided they, they want a king. Now they've had a king. They've had the greatest king you could ever have. But they don't want that king. They want an earthly king. They want a flesh and blood king. They want a king like the other nations have. And so they desire this. And so they, you know, keep on. And so God gives them a human king. And so when God gives them a human king, Samuel knows two things. He knows, number one, that's a disaster because he's told them that the whole time. But yet Samuel's faithful to follow through and do the things that whatever God calls him to do. But he also knows, number two, that his time is done because once they get an earthly king, then there's no more need for him because his function, you know, won't be necessary. And so that'll be the transition. And so we speak the truth, number one. Number two, we live the truth. So now we're going to see how Samuel, who has lived out the truth, now what happens when we live it? Because if we speak it and we don't live it, then that makes us a hypocrite. And it's not really true, is it? No, it's not really truth. So in order for it to be truth, we have to speak it and live it. So now we go to 1 Samuel 12. Forty years later, Samuel said to all of Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me and have made a king over you. Notice, he's making sure that they know that this has nothing to do with him. This wasn't his idea. And they know. But they want it anyway. And now, here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. So he is now relaying to them this vast span of time. So these people, they've watched him grow up. They, they watched him become a young man. They watched him become an adult. They've, they've seen this the whole transition. You know, that's the remarkable thing about when a, when a person has the opportunity to stay in a position for a long period of time. What happens is then, you know, he gets to grow or she gets to grow with people, with families, with generations, with... It's just a very remarkable thing. Verse 3, here I am, witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or who have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or of whose have I received any bribe with which, my, uh, which to my blind eyes I will restore to you? So he's saying, hey, if I've defrauded anyone, even if I've done it unknowingly, Speak now or forever hold your peace. I'm going to make it right. He knows that he has lived upright all of his life before the people. He's been honest. He's been truthful. He's not saying that he's perfect. He's pointing out. He hasn't cheated anyone. He hasn't lied to anyone. He's not saying in any way that he's sinless. But he's saying, I have not abused my office which at this point in his life, he's very aware 
of all the downfall of Eli and all that scenario. And so he's learned from all those things. And so there's people that are standing there that are listening to this that, you know, like they, they were the same age as him. They grew up together. They, you know, they might have went to school together. They might have, who knows, you know, but they've known him. They knew his family. There were, there's people listening to, to this who are now, you know, in their early 50s or who are his cousins. His nephews are there. His aunts are there. His uncles are there. I mean, these people know him. They've wa- they watched him get married. They watched him have kids. They've seen him be a dad. They've seen him raise his kids. They've seen his kids grow up. They've seen it all. Everything. And it's a unique perspective for him to be able to stand before them and say, now, let's, let's get this straight. I'm at the end of my run, but I want to clarify. Have I done anything, anything among you? Verse 4. And they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. So he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. So we're just clarifying. Let's just get this straight. And they said, He is witness. Now this is important because... What he's doing, I mean, why is Samuel going to all this trouble to make sure that everyone is clear on what we're saying? See, he's getting them to agree and to acknowledge that he has only spoken the truth to them, that he's been totally upfront and honest before them, that he's lived out all the truth that he said so that there's no question about his character he gets them to confess that right and so that brings us to the third principle that we love the truth you see we don't just speak it we don't just live it but we love it and by loving it I don't mean that we just love the truth but we love with the truth you see because if you speak it and you live it then you have to love with it and in order to love with it you have to love it If you don't love it, you won't love with it. See, if you think about Eli's downfall again, it's interesting to me that as all of this is happening, Eli's shadow is in the background. And he's the opposite of all these things that we're saying. That Eli clearly didn't speak, live, because he didn't love with the truth, because he refused to love Hophni and Phinehas. He didn't love them. He was more concerned that they love him. And so we have to love the truth, love with the truth. Verse 6, so Samuel said to the people, so he gets everybody on the same page. We all agree what the reality of the situation is. Samuel said to all the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still or stand Like a man, stand and receive 
that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did for you and for your fathers. When Jacob had gone to Egypt and your fathers cried out in the Lord to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made you dwell in this place. And when you forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. Verse 10, then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served Baals and Asherahs. And now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you dwelt in safety in safety and when you saw Nahash king of the Amorites come against you you said to me no but a king shall reign over us you see so they were they saw that in other nations they coveted that and desired that and when the Lord your God was your king you still wanted that verse 13 now therefore Here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, this is important. Who has set the king over the people? God has. And Samuel is making sure they understand that. So then the following makes sense. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice... And do not rebel against the commandments of the Lord. Then both you and the king who reign over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandments of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, Samuel speaking here, and he will send thunder and rain, and you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. Verse 18, so Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Hmm. So he gets the people ready to receive the truth. And what I mean by ready is he gets them to acknowledge the fact that he's always been trustworthy, he's always been forthright, he's always spoken the truth to them. They agree. And so, because why? Because he loves them. I mean, not only does God love them, but Samuel loves them. And so, because he loves these people, he's saying, now, what I'm about to tell you You need to listen to because I love you and I care about you. You see, honesty means that you share truth in your love. That's what it means. If you take truth out of love, it's not love, it's hate. You can't have love without truth. And as New Covenant believers, what we need to understand is how this reality impacts us, even in a a greater or more internal way 
than as we're reading from the Old Testament. Because for us, we need to recognize that the gospel creates honest people. And so if the gospel hasn't created honest people, then what's missing is the gospel. The gospel's been tainted. The gospel's been twisted. The gospel's been, or the gospel's been avoided for the sake of relationship, for the sake of people liking, for the sake of drawing a crowd, for the sake of making money, for the sake of you name it. You, I mean, there's a million, listen, the, the, the temptations never end. So we speak the truth, we live the truth, and we love the truth. We love with the truth. Now, let's think for a second about, um, you know, other people. Not us, other people. People not in this room. Think about people not in this room. Now, what are some motivations for them to lie? Well, come on, I'll help you. Like, maybe one motivation to lie would be fear. Like, if I don't lie then something bad's going to happen to me, right? Okay, so that'd be a motivation to lie. What's another motivation besides fear? What is it? Gain, right, because you could lie to, to, to gain. What's another motivation? Fear, gain, what else? There's a thousand right answers. You're not going to get, bam, I'm not using the buzzer tonight, so go ahead. Rejection, that's a huge one. A big temptation to lie is you don't want to be rejected. What's another one? Shame. What was that one? Pride. Yes. Good. What else? Can you think of any more? Dissension. Deception. That's right. Insecurity. So we could play this game for a while, couldn't we? We could keep thinking of things. Now here's what I want you to see. What do all of these things have in common? Every reason that you can think of. I sat in my office and, and I wrote a list back and front on a piece of paper of reasons that people would tell a lie. And every single one of them has one thing in common. How do all the reasons that we would lie relate spiritually back to the person. What is the issue? What is the problem? What is the problem that the reason that we're lying, because, see, the reason that we're lying is not the sickness. It's only the symptom. It's, it's you know, we're lying so we have a fever or we have a cough or we have, but the reason we have a fever is because there's something else wrong. Under all those things, it's the same thing wrong. Now, you, if you were just guessing out of the clear blue sky, you ought to get this right. Every single reason to lie comes back to identity. It's an identity problem. Every reason. A person who knows who they are in the gospel then has no reason to lie because all of those reasons 
are denying something that's true. So for a Christian to tell a lie, you as a believer of Jesus cannot lie without abandoning the gospel on some level, about, without denying your identity. You have to be misdirected in order to do that. You see, because look, think about it. If I lie because I'm afraid, then that proves a Christian who's afraid is a Christian that, that has an identity problem, right? Okay, so if I lie for gain, then, and I'm a Christian, then I have an identity problem. See, I don't understand that my father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't understand that. I don't understand that he's good and that he's sovereign. I don't understand that, or I wouldn't do that. If I'm insecure, if I'm all, everything, you name it. You could go through dozens of reasons. Every one of them is a denial of the gospel on some level as it relates to our identity. And so that's what I want you to see. That's why I put this verse from James chapter 5. Because, you know, James chapter 5, that's the end of the book of James. So, and we studied through the book of James. Remember when we were at, uh, we'll never forget when we did that because that was the quarantine series. And so, at the end of the book of James, and think about, you, you're all familiar with that book. And you think about all of the, 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 the straightforward nature of that book and how James just, you know, Pastor James just lays it right out. And so, you know, he, he comes off the scene dealing with here's real faith, here's fake faith, and, you know, all the different evidences of uh, true faith in Christ. He deals with classism, racism, judgmentalism. He's dealt with rebellion. He's dealt with the wickedness of the tongue. I mean, think of all the things that have been dealt with in the book of James. And then when you get to the end of the book of James, this verse says, but above all. Now just stop right there. You mean above all, all those things that you've said in those four and a half chapters? I mean, think of everything that's been said. And then James gets to the end of that and he says, Now, above all, my brothers. See, he's not talking to, he's talking to Christians. Above all of that believer, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. My goodness, that is a mammoth statement right there. So on top of all those things. And see, people have gotten confused over the years and twisted this all around and gotten all hung up on stuff about this swearing and what, what that means. And, you know, if, if you've ever been confused about any of that, then you need to go and read Matthew chapter 23 when Jesus, it's the whole chapter is basically read. And whenever you see an entire chapter read, meaning Jesus doesn't even take a breath, no one else says another word for well, it's because he's talking to the Pharisees. And it's just brutal. And he's talking to them about 
he did all the different things, the oaths that they do, and how they've made this whole sort of, you know, thing where they say, you know, it doesn't mean anything if you swear against the temple, but if you swear against the gold of the temple, then it means something. And you're like, what is going on? It's the same thing today. It's the same thing as sticking a needle in my eye. It's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. The, the, the Pharisees, that culture is no different from this culture. Look, times change, but people don't change. It's the same thing. We have this whole thing about, it's the same thing as you having to tell somebody today, I promise, I swear, that's, that I'm telling the truth. Why do you have to say that? Why do you have to say that? All this is is about this veiled attempt to convince people to believe you. That's what the whole thing is. And the point James is making is that what really matters, the only thing that really matters is the fact that every word that proceeds out of your mouth is under the direct observation of the God of heaven. So all of this trying to convince people that you're telling the truth and trying to say all these things. Listen, it's for, for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not that uh, promising things are wrong. Like, I mean, I've heard of Christians just getting way whacked out about this, saying that, well, you know, it's a Christian ought not sign a contract. What are you talking about? I mean, you are just going, you're out there, man, on the fringe of reality. That is not what this is about. What this is about is that, is that for the Christian, all these promises and claims and things are unnecessary. Because your word ought to be your word. So you don't have to... You don't have to say, you don't have to say, oh, I swear on my mom's grave or on this or that. You don't have to say that because it's unnecessary because you're a, a Christian. Because the gospel makes honest people. All right, so let's practically wrap this up and put it all together so we can understand where we are. All right? So Here's the reality about telling the truth. I don't know of a, maybe you know of a situation, I don't. In my life, there's no situation where the truth is easier. It just never works out that way. Never. The truth is always harder initially, right? And that's just how it is. It's just hard, which is the reason why so many people struggle with it, because it's hard. So when it's hard, when you're, when you're trying to tell the truth, this, these are the things I believe you need to know. Number one, you need to know that you can't please everyone. That will, that will set you free right there. Because part of the great temptation in being dishonest with others and dishonest with yourself, like almost every destructive habit and every destructive activity is predicated on self-lying. And it's predicated on external line. 
Because apart from lying, it won't work. Like, that's the only way you can explain, I know this is bad for me, but yet I'm going to do it anyway. You have to lie to get there. You have to tell yourself something that's not. But that's the temptation is that, you know, I don't want to tell the truth because I know what other people are going to think. You see, that's hard. I don't, I don't want people to, 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 if I tell people they're going to think poorly of me, or if I tell people the truth, you know, they're going to think bad of me, or if I tell them the truth, it's going to, how many, how many times have I had the conversation with somebody and they say to me, Pastor, if I tell them that, it's going to devastate them. Okay. I don't want to devastate them. But if you don't tell them the truth, it's going to devastate you. And maybe them too. Galatians 1. It's the fear of man. And Paul says, if I'm trying to please men, I can't be a servant of Christ. So you see, you can't. You can't. You can't do it. You can't do it. And it never gets easy, but it's necessary. The second one is, know that you're not responsible for everybody's feelings. I mean, this is a big one, especially for you ladies. This is Eli, big time. This is moms and their kids, big time. Moms and their husbands, big time. I mean, it's all of us, but especially... You can't take responsibility for other people's feelings. You can't do that. You got to understand that, you know what? People are going to feel things about things. And it's, maybe it's not good. Maybe it's, it's going to be painful. Maybe it's, I mean, sometimes you, got, you walk into situations like, I know I already know what the result's going to be. I know that not only is it going to create bad feelings, but then it's going to also create bad feelings towards me, but I didn't even have anything to do with it. I'm just the messenger. Still got to do it. You start, you start making decisions based on other people's feelings. You are going to wreck your life. You hear me? You're going to wreck it. Because let me, there is nothing more erratic and, and unpredictable and dishonest than our feelings. So beware of that. Now, at the same time, we also know that we can speak the truth in a loving way. And there's never a situation where you can't do that. Never. And I want to give you a spiritual insight about this principle right here. Notice the verse that I chose was Ephesians 4.15. Instead, speak the truth in love. And we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. So here's what you need to know about this principle. One of the most definitive marks of spiritual maturity is the ability to speak truth and love. 
That's what that verse right there says. That verse says that speaking truth in love is evidence of spiritual maturity. A spiritual infant is a person who can speak the truth but not in love and then unnecessarily wounds people. I mean, it is guarantee obvious. You, you know somebody in your life who speaks the truth in love, that's spiritual maturity. You know somebody who maybe they talk a big talk and walk a big walk, but if they can't speak the truth in love, they are immature. Guaranteed. Next, know that you're not a perfect person. And here's the thing. We all say that we know this, but we need to remember this in the moment when telling the truth is hard. And so I always think of it this way. You know, it's not just, yes, we all know theologically that we're all sheep and have gone astray and each of us turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We all get that. But here's what you have to remember. Whenever I'm trying to tell the truth to somebody, whenever you're telling the truth to somebody, just remember this. You're not looking down on them. You're looking across at them. You're looking across. It's just one sinner talking to another sinner. And that is key. Because you won't be successful. You see, this is what, I, as I thought about this, is what I thought about. I thought about there's probably a couple people in here that you're going to leave tonight, or maybe you've already been having some unrest in your heart, and here's why. Because legitimately so, you're saying, you know, this sounds good, Pastor, but I've told the truth, and it has blown me to smithereens. And I would say that you violated one of these middle principles. That either you, you didn't speak the truth in love, or you didn't remember, you weren't looking across at somebody. Now, I'm not saying that it's not going to blow up because I blow stuff up all the time. But I'm saying that it's blown you up. See, if I speak the truth and love to somebody and I look across to them and not down to them and it blows up, it ain't blowing me up. Because I know who I am in Christ, so I'm going home laying down confident in my identity in Christ and going to bed. You see? And then the big one, the last one, the big one. Know that you're not accountable for how others respond to the truth. I mean, probably half of you in the room have, have heard me say, to you in some context or setting before is that you know if you make decisions based on other people's reactions you are going to make the wrong decision every time you can't do that listen you're the look just think about think about what this truth teaches us this last one this is the truth that applies to every abused person who doesn't speak up and allows the abuser to continue to abuse them. You think you're going to stand before God and God's going to say, you told the truth and look at what happened. I mean, come on. 
But how many people, how much pain just in this room has been inflicted on us because we've been manipulated by people doing the same thing? If you do this, I'll do this. Look, when somebody tells you, if you do this, I'll do this, that's your cue. Right there. Don't budge. That is the most unhealthy dynamic in the world. It violates the gospel. We are all individually accountable for our actions. Now listen. That, that's not to condemn you. Some of you need to hear that tonight because you need to be reminded that, um, you know, the, the people that inflicted pain upon you that have hurt you so bad and caused such pain and suffering in your life, you need to understand they will be held accountable for their action. You don't have to right that wrong. God is going to handle it. Trust me, He has a ledger and it ain't missing anything. And hell's coming to bear. Okay? Yes. But we also can't be manipulated. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Always. So I hope and pray that we can take this picture of honesty and apply it to our lives and, and live in a God-glorifying way. And that we could be people that exhibit spiritual maturity by the way that we, that we genuinely love the people around us. We, we love with truth. We love with it. And it takes practice. If you're not used to it, it takes practice. But it's worth it.